Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here this week with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? I am very well, man. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I Last week, I think at the beginning of the show, I indulged listeners in conversation about how I'd smashed my foot up. Uh, turns out, I had an x-ray today, nothing seems to be broken... So um, luckily for me, I get to run 21 kilometers in the countryside on Sunday. So that's super fortunate because I would have been gutted not to have to do that. How are you doing there, Paul? Yeah, I'm, I'm very good. I'm very good. As, as I said, you're running, you're running 21 kilometers in the countryside and I'm due to, ro- due to cycle 300 miles in September. So wow. yes, uh, this is yeah. <laughs> just not in one go, just over the whole month of September. So yeah, I've been practicing for that, which is quite nice to get outside a bit more, but not forgetting about my first love of films. It's, um, I've been watching a few less films, shall we say, of late, uh, but I'm going to still gun for that high. That letterbox tally will still be ahead of you at the end of the year, Pete. I'm oh, sure that's of it. A, Although I've that's seen you me up. <laughs> they've they've closed the book at all of the bookies they won't take bets on it anymore because each year i kind of talk a big game in the first month or so and then finish on a cool 250 or something like that at the end of the year where you go like oh yeah i've hit 470 or something so uh yeah i don't know i don't yeah. know if you noticed but early in the year i did pump up my numbers a bit with that series of uh love death and robots or whatever where every short film... noted it was noted and i did yeah. the same yeah <laughs> everyone counted uh, technically but yeah I, I've kind of stopped competing because I know I'm going to lose um, tell you what though man what we are both winners at is delivering a lovely juicy podcast and we've got another one today as always though let's start the podcast in the same place as we generally do and that is the place that we call in the foyer this is the part of the show where we throw around some movie news from the last week or so Paul Anderson what has been across your radar in the last seven days news wise uh, there's a lot of stuff coming out of Disney the I think the d23 Expo as it's been called but the one that stood out for me is two bits of Star Wars related news uh, one is that there's a new trailer for rise of Skywalker the final the final final film in the Skywalker saga um, the trailer is very very well put together with some uh, fantastic, nostal- cloyingly nostalgic shots of the original trilogy, then some shots of the prequel trilogy before jumping into footage from the new film. Um, I think I'm, I did mention uh, Rise of Skywalker the other day. It's probably still one of my most anticipated films for the rest of the year because although I didn't like Last Jedi, I am still a Star Wars fan. Uh, and I still cling on to that. Um, and yeah, no change really in the way this trailer works. They've managed to give away very little spoilers to the actual plot of the film. Um, but they have put loads of very, very, very cool shit in here uh, to get fanboys going for sure. Um, there's some incredible shots of Ray with a double-ended lightsaber, potentially looking a bit like a Sith Lord. I don't think it'll go that way, but my God, did it look cool. There's what looks like uh, an airport car park of Star Destroyers um, that look very much like they could be Star Destroyers from the original trilogy. So that's very, very cool. Um, Yeah, there's some awesome looking lightsaber jewels. Uh, I'm quietly excited for this one again now, to be honest. I still think there's a lot of narrative work to do. But if you're, you know, if you're going to promote the film in any way, like this is this is absolutely the way to do it. I think the trailer looks I think the trailer makes the film look like a lot of fun. Uh, and hopefully I will enjoy this one. The second bit of Star Wars news, though, not technically a film as such, but the trailer for the Mandalorian TV series has dropped. And this looks incredible. This stars Pedro Pascal as an unnamed Mandalorian. 
Um, Mandalorian Pete, for your information, is you know the character of Boba Fett. Sure. The armor he wears is Mandalorian armor. Um, so basically, this is centered around a bounty hunter. Uh, played by Pedro Pascal, which is exciting. Uh, you've got Taika Waititi voicing his droid companion, which is very exciting. Gina Carano's in this. Uh, and I urge you to watch the trailer, Pete, because at the end of the trailer, Werner fucking Herzog is in this thing. Uh, which is, Werner Herzog in Star Wars is all I need to know, TV series or not. Directed by John Favreau, I think initially the pilot, or certainly he's the showrunner. Some extra episodes directed by Taika Waititi. So more, I'm more excited about that TV series than I am about Rise of Skywalker, I'll be honest. Question, um, where, where is yeah. this TV series going to be available? It's going to be premiering on Disney+. Plus. Oh, when that, of course So this is. is their new yeah. streaming service, yeah. I mean... This is TV with a budget like I, I've never seen. Like if you look at the trailer, this thing looks like a film. It looks like Rogue One essentially. Yeah. Um. It yeah. It's it's got a lot of money behind it, and Werner Herzog's in Star Wars. Like yeah. Werner Herzog is in Star Wars. <laughs> well, I mean, with the Disney, is it called Disney Plus? What did you call it? Disney Plus. Disney yeah. Plus. With the Disney Plus rollout, I guess we were going to expect some pretty huge tentpole-y stuff um, mm. to, to open that up. So, yeah, no surprise. But, like, when you give me Star Wars, I'm kind of, like, so-so, as you know, on, on interest levels. But then when you give me yeah. uh, Taika Waititi, then Gina Carano, and then Werner Herzog, I mean, I don't know how any <laughs> yeah. of those would all, you know, coalesce into one project, but it seems like that's happened. So, yeah, I'm that's piqued my interest. And I, I mean... I thought it might. I, I would say I'll, I'll get involved, but then, like... I won't, though, will I? Because I just can't see myself being a Disney subscriber. Unless this is the kind of service where you can get, like, a free week-long trial and I can just blitz the series and then duck out Ah, well, they've thought of that because episodes are going to be dropping weekly. Oh, of course they are. Yeah. Uh, Pete, what have you got film news wise? Enough Star, enough Star Wars for this well, week. Well, well, almost enough. Yeah, I just wanted to do a little plug for our socials, Paul, because um, yeah, you said it was your mo- one of your most anticipated. I think it came number three on your list behind just yes. the Robert Eggers and the um, uh, what's her Jennifer name, Kent. Jennifer Kent. Yeah, Jennifer Kent. Uh, behind those yeah. those two. So um, this is in your top five most anticipated of the rest of the year. That list from yourself and the list that I made on the episode we did two weeks ago. They're both available yeah. on our Instagram account at the moment. So if you want to go and see what Paul and I are most excited about for the rest of the year. Get on there. Tell us why we're right or why we're wrong and like what you're looking forward to for the rest of the year. Um, there's some good stuff coming. There's also a very fetching picture of Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell as Tango and Cash now up on the Instagram page, listeners, as well. So we spoil you. Oh, that's just <laughs> gravy on top. Um, so the news that I've got to bring to the table this week is uh, related to the fact that Sir Christopher of Nolan has added a <laughs> cast member. Um, Himesh Patel has joined Tenet, which is Chris Nolan's next feature um, due to release next summer, I believe. Um, let me get a more specific date than that. I think it's July next year. Um, just one moment. But yeah, uh, Tenet, yeah, 17th of July 2020 is the current UK release date. This is an action drama thriller. Plot details are thin on the ground at the moment, as you'd expect with, you know, someone like Nolan, who has such a sort of vociferous, cultish kind of mainstreamish following at the at this point in time. Uh, however, this does seem to be a film that is um related to international espionage and what we've got as you again might expect is a very very starry cast um christopher nolan at this point in time has got pretty big pulling power i'd say so we've got elizabeth debicki um aaron taylor johnson robert pattinson kenneth Branagh, uh, michael kane uh who else here 
Oh, John David Washington that we've spoken about on the show a couple of times. So, yeah, I mean, Paul, I guess I'll throw this back to you. Where are your excitement levels at for the next Christopher Nolan, especially now that we know that we're dealing with espionage, we're dealing with uh, action, we're dealing with some sort of thriller element? He's a director that I know both of us have had a lot of positive things to say uh, about. Where are you at with Tenet at this point in time? Uh, I've seen the trailer. So the the trailer, this is unusual for a trailer. The, the only time I've seen it is in a cinema screen. I don't know whether it's dropped online yet. And I quite like that, to be honest. I was quite excited the first time I got to see the teaser trailer was in the cinema. That was nice. Kind of old school, I think. Um, yeah, it's there's rumour. I mean, there's there's always a lot of rumours about Christopher Nolan films. There's rumour it might have something to do with Inception. And if you look at the kind... when you If you see the, the teaser... You look at the kind of font on the screen and the way the text comes across the screen and certainly the look of the trailer, I'd say that there might there might be something there. So, we'll, you know, that will be intriguing to see where that goes. But yeah, excitement levels, Pete, um, high for me, to be honest. I think, yeah, Nolan does big budget thinking, thinking action films incredibly well. Yeah, um, so and, yeah, no, I'm excited. And I mean, it, it was certainly worth commenting on given that we're talking about Chris Nolan. The word tenet here is a palindrome and that's going to be significant, isn't it? So it's a word that reads the same from front to back, right? Um, and yeah, I would imagine there's going to be some sort of, you know, Matroshka doll, uh, intricate sort of narrative mechanism built into this thing as there tends to be with Nolan stuff. And I mean, the other day, for some reason, I just had a thought again about the last Nolan movie where you had like the land, the sea and the sky elements that were all timed over a period of like an hour, a day and a week. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Dunkirk yeah, is the movie so. I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. Dunkirk, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I thought like as much as there were quite a few reservations I had about that movie, I just thinking about it for a second, I thought like we're quite lucky to have a film director who has ideas like that and manages to pull them off on such a grand scale. So, yeah, I mean, excitement levels, I think, are going to rise. This is a bit of a way off, given that we're mid-2020 and there's loads of stuff to come on the show before then. But I think by the time we get into the spring, we'll be talking about it a lot more and looking forward to uh, that movie, particularly when we get more details drip-fed to us, I guess, via the internet and, and so on. Um, I think that's about it for news this week, Paul, but we're going to be back as we always are at about this time with the section of the show that we call Popcorn Movies right after this. Right, so Popcorn Movies. Um, this week, I've just watched this film, Pete, and I'm very excited to talk about it as I think I messaged you just before the show. And as I've just mentioned, there's a picture for this film just appeared on our Instagram. Uh, this is Tango and Cash uh, from 1989, directed by Andrzej Kolcholski, um, who has gone on to be Oscar nominated, I think, since this film. But then I think before this made Runaway Train with John Voight um, and Charles Bronson, I want to say. Um, a few years before that, starring um, Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell with Jack Palance um, on villainous duties. Have you seen this, Pete, at all? No, I don't think I have. Okay. No, I had to think, I had to wrap my brains when you put it up, but no, I don't think I have. I honestly can't decide whether the 80s ended because of Tango and Cash or Tango and Cash ended the 1980s. And this is by far one of the most out there, ridiculous action films I have ever laid eyes on. It's just bonkers. Like in it, there's there's a scene where Kurt Russell is in drag. Um, that's very bizarre and fools a policeman into fancying him. That's that's that, that's one of one of the highlights. 
There's an inexplicable room full of mirrors, which is very 1980s. Um, there's a converted minivan with a minigun on the side of it that just looks as terrible as you can expect that they drive towards the end. Um, there's lots of monster trucks, inexplicably. Um, it's yeah, absolutely insane. Ah, and also there is the best, either the best or worst example of gratuitous nudity, I think, in a Hollywood film. So it's towards the beginning... There is a car chase. There is a car chase happening. Kurt Russell is being chased by a villain, or, or vice versa. I forget now. And suddenly, the car's driving towards someone, and a woman and a man look up that having sex, and that is it. You just see, like, almost you just see a pair of tits, inexplicably, with no need for it whatsoever. Like, and to the point where you're just like, what is going on in this film? That that's that's how it opens the door so early to just absolutely mindless eighties nonsense. I just think you can't get any more eighties in this film. Like. Stallone and Kurt Russell are clearly having a good time. It felt, in some ways, I'll be honest, a bit like the guys who made Hobbs and Shaw have watched this film. (laughs) Because Kurt Russell and and Stallone are constantly backwards and forth in between each other. They're trying to one-up each other. They're supposed to... The story, what loose story there is, is they are both... They're both the best cops in LA, one from the east side and one from the west side. And this maniacal drug-dealing villain who just sort of... Who just... Jack Palance just chewing up every bit of scenery he's in, clearly having the best time of his life. Uh, has had enough of both of them costing him millions and millions of dollars so he frames them for he frames them for murder and then they're up in jail together and they have to break out and it goes from there but honestly Pete if you it's I can't I can't say whether it's good or bad I don't know I genuinely don't know but I've just had an incredibly fun two hours watching this absolute mess of a film so highly recommended I think we should we should do some kind of 80s themed top five list at some point and then I'll have to do my yeah. homework and watch this movie for, for at least you will that do reason. well it would it would it would definitely hit number one in unnecessary gratuitous nudity for sure oh well then so, I'm in I mean yeah. you have me at gratuitous nudity I'll send you the link on YouTube just to that scene because it's worth it for that alone. Well, Paul, <laughs> you want to you want to talk further about sex? Can I offer you up uh, the first popcorn movie that I've got this week? This one is from director Penny Lane, who has recently been lauded for her new documentary Hell Satan, uh, which I haven't had the chance to see yet. But what I did do is went onto a Prime Video and found and watched the film Nuts! Exclamation mark from 2016. This is like a animated documentary there is these sort of um what's the way to describe this sort of a carefully sketched but rather kind of sketchy picture animations that um give some sort of color to the story but the story itself doesn't need a lot of hard sell when i give you a brief synopsis paul uh so this is the mostly true story of dr john romulus brinkley an eccentric genius who built an empire with his goat testicle impotence cure and a million watt radio station this is one of those stories that is so million watt radio station. <laughs> the, the, well, this is one of those stories stories that you think is like so weird and bizarre and crazy that it can't possibly be true, but it it, it really is. This is a guy who um, rolled up in a small town, a, a sort of a sleepy small town in America, just before the sort of radio uh, boom in terms of publicly available radio signals across America, yeah. right? And he decided that what he needed to do was set up as a medical practitioner who was going to offer new sort of um, 
groundbreaking treatment to men who were impotent, who were unable to father children. But the secret formula that he'd come up with was that he was going to transplant goat's testicles into the man's ball bag in order to uh, basically emulate what he saw as the sort of virility of all the goats in the countryside around him. So um, this is our start point for this crazy story. (laughs) But the radio thing comes in a little bit later as he realises that the best way to disseminate this information across a wider area and therefore get a wider customer base for his, let's be honest, kind of snake oilish practice is to build a radio mast and start to broadcast as your sort of local friendly medical expert. This quickly allows him to expand all the way to uh, a position where he's actually broadcasting from Mexico in order to avoid the sort of um, the the panopticonic like a view of the American government and just get away with building a multi-million dollar empire based <laughs> around basically testicle balls is the is the start point and then he has all kinds of other wacky cures and ointments and treatments as he goes along it's a fantastic little documentary it's really entertaining it's got like a real style to the animation as I was saying and I think that it's the kind of story that you won't forget um, it, it runs maybe maybe an hour and a half, maybe a little bit less than that, so it doesn't hang around too long. And off the basis of this, I'm all in on Hell Satan, because yeah, I had a great <laughs> a really great time with it. And like I can't say what happens at the end, but it's very worth it for what happens at the end and how this story sort of plays out. So I'd really recommend it. That one's available currently to stream on uh, Prime Video if you are lucky enough to afford whatever it is they charge these days. Paul, what else have you got this week? Uh, I've got a film, a British horror film from 1976 now called Satan's Slave, Pete. Um, it's as classy as an endeavour as you'd think it might be. It's directed yeah, it's, by... It's weird how you said Nor- S- Satan's Slave, Pete. Like you've you've attached me to some sort of sa- satanic this, slavery. This yeah. is the name of the film, is Satan's Slave, Pete. <laughs> uh, no, Satan's Slave. Uh, this is by a director who I wasn't familiar with until um, Indicator Blu-ray um, publishing house, I guess is the best way, the Indicator label that published Blu-rays. Um, issued a box set of his work so horror is always something that's been of interest to me British horror again like I'm intrigued to see uh, any British horror directors at work Uh, the guy's name is Norman J Warren that directed this and like his kind of work um, was he's regarded in some circles as almost like a new wave of British horror after the kind of decline of hammer horror Um, based on Satan's slave specifically though it's not a new wave of horror that I'll be following much further um this is it's got some interesting set pieces it's got some okay gory scenes but generally speaking it was just a little bit dull the acting wasn't great um and there's not really a lot to recommend from Satan's slave if I'm honest the story is is sort of very very thin on the ground um and not great so Satan's slave um give it a miss well, one that um, I would say don't don't give a miss uh, because well it's it's pretty pretty much a recommendation from 2018 that came from you Paul as far as I was concerned and this one is Wildlife um, currently streaming on the Netflix platform. This is uh, maybe the directorial debut of Paul Dano. Yeah, it is. Yes. So uh, Paul Dano co-wrote this with his partner that you're going to remind me the name of. Thank you. I'm doing this way too often on our show. I don't know what's happening to my memory. (laughs) But um, yeah, Uh, so Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan uh, teamed up to make this thing and then Paul Dano's directed. Paul Dano is obviously the actor that you'll know from... um, there will be blood and many other places and very talented, sort of quickly recognisable actor and sort of on-screen presence. 
This feature, though, uh, stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Carrie Mulligan, as a couple who are living in small-town America and are raising a boy, um, played by Ed Oxenbold, who's around about 15 years old, or 14, 15, in the movie. And uh, Gyllenhaal's character decides to take sort of dramatic action when he can't find work. And rather than take uh, jobs that he sees as sort of below him in the surrounding area, uh, bagging groceries and that kind of thing, he says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out onto the front line in terms of fighting the encroaching forest fires that are closing in on the community where they live. Uh, Bill Camp co-stars here and Zoe Margaret Coletti, who's also in Scary Stories uh, to Tell at Night, which we'll talk about later on. But um, yeah, what did I think about this one? Because I know you liked it quite a lot, Paul. Am I right? Mm. I did like it, yeah. yeah. I thought it was m- m- sort of uh, a master... Not a masterpiece, that's too strong a word, but I thought it was... Um... Yeah, masterful use of understatement. I thought it was quite, yeah, it was very understated in the way that it went quite a subtle film and I enjoyed it for that reason. And Carrie Mulligan's performance I thought was superb. Yeah, yeah. I I, I largely agree, although I might quibble slightly on the subtlety of this movie, only because I totally know what you mean. Like, it's not a film that sort of screams in your face. But at the same time, there are um, metaphors here which are pretty... um, not heavy-handed is too strong of a thing to say, but like really announce themselves. The idea that you've got this guy who is mm. fighting um, the the physical fire, but also the sort of encroaching, emasculating influence of what he sees as sort of a modern um, wave of like feminist thought and changing America. Uh, also, the fact that the creeping mental illness of the uh, Carrie Mulligan character can be connected to that fire as well. Like there are a lot of. Um, emblems here across the text that made me feel I think this is adapted from a novel and it feels very much like it's adapted from a novel and it also felt from a visual point of view that it's very clearly identifiable as an early feature from an actor because I think I think 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 what you often get I'd say that's my my focus there is not on the early part I'm not criticising Dano for being like uh, under talented under skilled in this area he's clearly a very talented director but I think often what you get when actors get behind the camera is they want to include so many sort of uh, cine literate visual cues that sometimes that becomes almost distracting like there are certain framings in this film certain camera moves certain pushes in and pulls out that like take me out of the fairly thin plotting of the thing because you're so aware that this is a guy going like, look at the way I'm skillfully controlling the the emotion of the thing. In addition to that, I think Ed Oxenbold is, is not necessarily the greatest young actor as much as like a hope for the best for him because there was that one movie, uh, The Butterfly Room, I think it was called, Butterfly Tree, where his brother went on Letterbox and slacked off the movie that he'd been in, which uh, I really <laughs> felt for him then. But yeah, I, I think Wildlife is a good movie. It's an actor's movie, very clear. Clearly, you're right that Mulligan's good. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal's excellent here. I think it's one of his best performances of late, for sure. I just think that it's a bit too sort of insistent sometimes. And, and I wish maybe he'd sort of pull back a little bit in that regard. But um, but yeah, as a sort of actor's exercise, really, really good. And as I said, currently streaming on Netflix. So you've got no excuse um, as long as you're a subscriber to that platform. Others are available. Paul, what else have you got this week? Uh, so yeah, so uh, the trailer for... Um uh Greta Gerwig's latest film um Little Women dropped recently um and I was chatting to my sister about it and my sister was like oh little they're not the one, well one of the other film versions of Little Women uh is one of her favorite films so with that in mind the 1994 version of Little Women uh, directed by Gillian Armstrong I set out to find it and we watched it together um so this focuses on if you don't know the story it focuses on a pretty famous book I think it's the first one in a series of four or five books possibly 
Thanks, my sister, for that. I didn't know this at all. Um, basically, so there's their, uh, with their father always a chaplain in the Civil War, Joe, Meg, Beth and Amy grew up with their mother in somewhat reduced circumstances. They're a close family who have their squabbles and tragedies, but the bond holds even when later male friends start to become a part of the household. So it's a, so it's a period piece around a family of, yeah, a family of women with the father away. Um, they're kind of having, having money struggles. They're not sure if they're going to get married off and who they're going to get married off to. Um, and this stars, um, and they're all very young at the time, because this is 1994, this came out. You've got Winona Ryder, Trina Avalaldo, Claire Danes, Kirsten Dunst, Samantha Massis, Susan Saradon, a very young Christian Bale, um, Gabriel Byrne, almost but not quite Marty McFly, Eric Stoltz. So quite a starry cast, to be fair, for the early 90s. Um, for the most part, I did like this film. I thought it was... <sighs> I thought the performances were solid, although no one really jumped out at me. I think the young Winona Ryder is, is decent here. Kirsten Dunst shows a lot of potential, and you can see why she's gone on to be a bigger star. But I just found the directing not the most exciting. I found the camera quite... quite um, I did kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? Stoic is the wrong word, I guess? Static. I found the, the camera very static in places. I didn't find the direction of this film that exciting that being said I did engage with the story and most of the performances were decent so I didn't love this as much as my sister thought I would and she's probably going to kill me once she listens to this podcast because uh, she was just like, are you going to talk about the podcast I was like yes I will uh, now she'll hate me for life uh, I'm more excited about the Greta Gerwig version than I am about watching this uh, than I am about this film um, but if you haven't seen it you could do a lot worse than this this um, yeah yeah this adapt, this and, and it will be it. interesting to reflect on, I guess, once we get to reviewing that movie and see how it's been well, adapted. That's, to, and to be honest, yeah, if if not, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's always quite interesting to see how how different adaptations work. So yeah, this is the Gillian Armstrong version. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see where this goes. Uh, we'll see where the Greta Gerwig version goes, which I'm quite excited about because the cast look incredible for that. So yeah, that's my uh, that's my final popcorn for the week. Um, I've got one more to pop out this week, and this one uh, oh, it's it's my favourite of the week, Paul. Uh, this one is Summer Hours from 2008, and this is filling in a gap in my Olivia Assayas back catalogue. Uh, Assayas has obviously got another movie coming out. Uh, towards the end of this year called Non-Fiction with Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche is in this one as well, uh, rather unsurprisingly. She was in Clouds of Sils Maria from the same director too. Um, Summer Hours was on Mubi, and I wish I could come on here and say it's still on Mubi, but it's just left like a day or two ago. I'm sure you can track it down elsewhere, and it's certainly got like a disc, disc release at this point, given that it's 11 years old. But yeah, uh, to the story. So this is a story of a family who early on meet up in uh, the country garden of the matriarch played by Edith Scobb. Edith Scobb's this actress who made her name in her early 20s in Eyes Without a Face but more recently has been in things like um, Holy Motors for uh, the Carax, Louis Carax, Leo Carax that movie, yeah, 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 yeah. Leo that Carax, kind yeah. of really trippy sort of a spaced out thing I um, love that movie. Yeah. I love that movie. But yeah, go so on. <laughs> Edith Scobb is this uh, plays this matriarch who is with all of her children. Uh, she's just turning seventy five, and she has a rather um, out of the blue conversation with one of her grown up sons, where she says, "We need to start thinking about what is going to happen to all of the sort of artifacts of this house once I pass away, um, because you know that could be any time now. It could be ten years. It could be next month, and this." takes him aback because what they've got here is a house full of artworks and uh, paintings and uh, sculptures and so on which were all created by her late husband uh, the Scobbs character's late husband and to that point she has kind of been the 
the curator of this great collection of artwork. But suddenly she's facing her own mortality and saying, hey, don't worry about these items. Once I'm gone, sell them. Give them away. Give them to museums for all I care. It doesn't matter. I'll be dead. I'll be in the ground. It's, there's, there's no worry about you letting go of all these things. So the movie allows the director and the actors here to look at not only uh, life and death, which is obviously central here. Um, it's not a spoiler to say that Scob's character passes away fairly soon after. But looking at mm. like the relations that people, uh, human beings, have with objects in the world. So the way in which we attach... Uh, great significance to things that we have around our house for sentimental reasons or monetary reasons or whatever it might be, but also looking at the way in which maybe those things don't matter. The film look like has this thing both ways. So it would be very easy to make a movie about letting go of material things. I mean, there was that Hoffman Senna movie, uh, Please Give, a few years back, maybe 10 years mm. back, less than that, uh, where Catherine Keener was kind of giving away all this or selling all this furniture that she found in the homes of deceased people in, in a kind of way of capitalising on the death of those people, I guess, and was conflicted about that thing. But here you've got both sides, right? Like... On the one hand, these people, uh, the the kids, uh, Juliette Binoche included, who are, you know, into their sort of 40s and early 50s at the point of death of their mother, could say, yeah, we don't need anything. We'll take this money and we'll move on with their lives. But then they've got a little uh, a fly in the ointment, which is that if they take possession of all of the items um, and then look to sell them, they're going to be taxed an absurd amount in inheritance for taking on all that stuff so what they need to do right, then okay. is convince places like uh, the Orsay Museum in Paris to just take stuff off their hands so that they can avoid those charges there are like loads of brilliant things I think in this movie but particularly like a sequence where in the Orsay Museum later on a group of tourists walk through a room that has this desk in it that you've seen earlier in the film in a couple of different scenes have significance to the characters at its centre. And here, this group of tourists just sort of walk in, look at it, and they're like, oh, that's, you know, this artefact from this time. And they're like, yeah, great. <laughs> and just walk out of the room and it has absolutely no meaning. And like, amazing that Asaeus is someone who can make a scene that is essentially a still camera looking at a table feel quite emotionally powerful. I really, really enjoyed this. I just think he's such an like interesting and intelligent director and that's why my most anticipated move of the year in fact is non-fiction which comes out later this yeah, year so I'll, I'll wax lyrical about fair that enough. probably when it comes out but have you got anything else that you say that was the end of your selection that is uh, that is my three popcorns for the week so yeah i'm all good I'm well in that good. case uh, we will be back in just a moment with the next section of this lovely show which we call coming attractions right after this So yeah, Coming Attractions is the section of the show where we come up with some films that are coming out this week and basically give your opinion or give you a little bit of a little bite-sized bit of information about those films and tell you whether we're excited about them or not. Uh, Pete, what have you got for me? So what I have first of all, Paul Anderson, is a film called A Million Little Pieces. Uh, you might recognise the title as being the name of the memoir from James Frey that was famously scrutinised, uh, not least by Oprah Winfrey, who had given uh, her a seal of approval to this book and then kind of took it away quite dramatically on television. Reason being that this was a memoir by a man who said that he'd been through absolutely hellish, agonising um, 
cold turkey drug rehabilitation and then it turned out that some maybe many of the details had actually been fabricated part fictionalized misremembered or entirely created um anyway to the film itself this one's directed by sam taylor johnson and it stars her partner aaron taylor johnson an actor that i think we both quite like right paul yeah, I'd say so. I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, in supporting uh, duty or on supporting duties to Taylor Johnson, who obviously plays James Frey's uh, character in the movie, we've got Charlie Hunnam, we've got Ryan Hurst, who's um, from uh, Sons of Anarchy with Char- Charlie Hunnam, for example, Juliette Lewis, Giovanni Ribisi, Billy Bob Thornton, ah, and David Dasmalkian, the guy who was in Ant-Man and the Wasp and the domestics in that like amazing sort of post- post-apocalyptic, you remember oh, it, we yes. talked about yeah, it on yeah. the show, maybe, yeah. yeah. This actor is just, oh, I love him. Oh, we love him so yeah i think he's worth watching yeah. anything and uh odessa young from assassination nation which is not worth watching so um yes i think i've given you an idea of the plot there paul the release is this coming thursday or friday it's going to go wide are you excited interested not bothered how do you feel about a million little pieces interested by a million little pieces anything to add uh no it's not a story I know. It's not. It's not. A, I knew nothing about that. That James. James Frey. Did you say James Frey? Yeah, I, yeah I'm surprised. I've, it was never, parodied. Never all, crossed my path at all. So it was parodied all over the place. They had a whole episode of South Park, which was about this. I'm surprised I haven't seen it's, it then because I'm a big. It, South it's Park called fan, a million yeah. little fibers, and it's a Towley episode <laughs> uh, in in South Park. In case people want to look that up, uh, yeah. It also reminds me, Paul, of another thing which you may know about. Do you know the rapper Buck Sixty Five? Yes. So Buck65 wrote a memoir maybe five years ago, uh, which had its title changed by the publisher. Reason being that very similarly to James Frey in some ways, it turned out that um, after an investigation from a Canadian online outlet, uh, Buck65 had, again, sort of fabricated, misremembered and sort of made up some of what he had said were the crazy, wacky adventures of Buck65. Um, and that guy, uh, Ro- Robert Turfrey, Robert Turfrey, I think is his name, uh, com- almost completely disappeared. Like, he's still de- DJing in Canada as a sort of drive-time mm. radio host, but he was an artist I really, really liked, super talented, did all this amazing collaborative musical stuff, and then fucked off because he was said that he had lied to so many people and sort of let himself down, and it was all very dramatic, and now he's gone radio silent on the internet. So, yeah, I- I'm interested in this because I was interested in the James Frey story because my takeaway at the time and we're going back I don't even know 10 10 more than 10 years 15 years was I sort of thought it doesn't really matter if he made it up Uh, the publisher went as far in the James Frey affair of offering people who'd bought the book a complete refund if they felt they'd been duped because they thought it was facts right and what they've got is something other than that but it'll be interesting another one Paul that may appeal but maybe slightly less um, sort of cerebral than that is The Informer this one releasing wide on August 30th pushed back though from an original release in March uh, directed by Andrea Di Stefano, this one stars Rosamund Pike, Anna Diarmas, who of course was beautiful yet beautiful in Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> and is also in the next Bond movie, um, No Time to Die, directed by Carrie Fukunaga, which is a thing we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the future. Uh, we've also got here at the centre of this thing, Joel Kinnaman, um, an actor that has spent about the last 10 years in the gym, uh, and Clive Owen and Common. It tells the story of an ex-convict working undercover who intentionally gets himself incarcerated again in order to infiltrate the mob of a maximum security prison paul does that sound like your kind of thing i can't see me rushing to see it i quite like joel kinnaman clive owens in it though so that's um 
Yeah, Cliveron's not. Cliveron projects don't normally excite me that much. This film sounds. I mean, I should. I should come up with something better than this, considering we're a film review show. This film sounds like it might be fine, uh, and as yeah. a result, will probably end up being watched on a slightly woozy-headed Sunday morning somewhere for me. Is probably as far as I'll go with this. Uh, I'm not going to rush to see this one. I don't think. Yeah, can I tell you a couple of other movies that you'd say that about? Probably movies like Before I Go to Sleep and The American, who were. Uh, written by the co-writer of this movie so that right, okay. might not fill you with excitement <laughs> yeah, the, another co-writer on this project matt cook worked on triple nine which was decent i think yeah. uh, and it's f- the thing that they're putting all over the poster which feels a bit desperate when they do this kind of thing is from the producer of uh, the right, town okay. and sicario so Fine, you know okay yeah if they have to label <laughs> from the producer of then you're, yeah then you're yeah. struggling really although paul i might be able to pull you back in by saying that part of this movie was filmed in gloucester prison yeah good (laughs) you sound jazzed (laughs) okay okay we'll move on in that case the next one up is called the mustang uh this one is the story of roman coleman played by matthias schernartz yes a violent convict who's given the choice to be rehabilitated through a program involving the training of wild mustangs a lot of rehabilitation on this week's show Uh, alongside matthias schernartz we've got jason mitchell who was in mudbound and also played easy e in straight out of compton if you saw that movie uh bruce dern gideon adlan who I'm pretty high on. She's the daughter of Pamela Adlin. She was in Blockers. She's really good. Uh, Connie Britton, that you'll know from American Horror Story and Dirty John and stuff like that. Uh, Co-written and directed by... uh, Sorry, co-written by the director and the writer of Bronson, whose name is fantastic, Paul. This writer's called Brock Norman Brock. Yes. (laughs) Could you go with Paul Anderson Paul? I mean, would that upgrade your name? It doesn't really work, does it, to be honest? I don't think... Or Pete um, Wall Pete. I don't know if that works either. But <laughs> so, so yeah, lastly on this one, Paul, uh, female director, Laura de Clermont. She is known mostly as an actor. She was in uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly and also a movie from Luc Besson that not enough people have seen called The Extraordinary Adventures of Adele Blanc-Sec, which I recommend. Does this sound like a movie that you want to see? You had me at Matthias Schoenhardt, sir. No. What cheekbones? <laughs> Yeah. What poise? <laughs> no, I yeah, no, I'm I'm excited about this. I've seen the trailer. I think it I think it looks really good. Um I'm yeah, I'm quite quite pumped for this one. The talent the talent on offer there is great as well. It's not just Messiah Schoenhardt, so it was an actor that I'd really do like. Uh yeah, I'm pretty buzzed pretty buzzed for the Mustang. So I will yeah. try and get to that um over the next week or so. In my copious planning for it, I've written two bullet point notes for this movie. One, it's a metaphor. <laughs> two, uh cinematographer <laughs> excitement in all capital letters. So the cinematographer for this movie is a guy called Ruben Impens. Ruben Impens, you will know from a movie that we absolutely salivated all over like a year or two ago called Raw. Oh yes. Yeah and, and also a movie that I don't know if you got round to but it's really good called uh, The Broken Circle breakdown no i haven't seen the broken circle breakdown yet raw was fantastic so yeah very excited very excited because that film looked incredible as well both lovely to look at so so incredible shots of both mustangs uh, wild mustangs and matthias schoenart's wild cheekbones um We've got a couple more to get to. The next one, uh, we briefly mentioned a couple episodes ago. This one's called The Souvenir from Joanna Hogg, a British film director who cut her teeth on stuff like London's Burning and Casualty on UK television, but has worked her way tirelessly to the point at which she seems to receive almost universal praise from sort of film circles at this point. Uh, Yeah, the movie, as I say, is called The Souvenir, and it stars Tilda Swinton, who, funnily enough, appeared in Joanna Hogg's graduate film uh, from university when Joanna Hogg was completely unknown, as was Tilda Swinton. Uh, co-starring is Neil Young uh, Tossin Cole who was in Unlocked which was rubbish and uh, The Force Awakens which was slightly better uh, Hon- uh, Honor I should say Swinton Burn, which
which is Tilda Swinton's daughter. Say, is that Tilda Swinton's daughter? Indeed, yeah. And then we've got uh, another little fa- familial relationship, which is uh, Richard Iowadi and Lydia Fox, Richard Iowadi's wife. Uh, they first met Paul on Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I've, I've discovered. Um, yes, this one tells the story of a young film student in the early 80s who becomes romantically involved with a complicated and untrustworthy man. Are you excited? Have you seen Joanna Hogg's movies before? I will confess I have not. I have not, but I'm excited about this one. Yeah, li- limited release. I think you might be able to fill me in here, Paul. Isn't this going on Curzon Home Cinema? Uh, I've got a feeling it might have been picked up by Curzon. Um, I if you thought fi- I saw If you that. fill some air for two minutes, I'll let you know. Okay, um, cool. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, what was I saying? So, yeah, Joanna Hogg, everyone seems pretty high on her at the moment. I mentioned, uh, well, I mentioned London, London's Burning and Casualty. Also, did you know that there's a Doc Cotton spin-off television movie from EastEnders, also directed by Joanna Hogg, which is astonishing. But in terms of feature films... Oh, no, stuff, I didn't know that existed. <laughs> I mean, it blew my mind. But then, uh, in addition, you've got feature film stuff like Exhibition and Archipelago, which I think are the ones that we probably, you know, should see and haven't. Um, but yeah, we'll get around to them as quick as we can to fill in the blanks in the the back catalogue. It seems like someone who's to Curzon, yes. lovely stuff, well played. Um, yeah, so there's no reason for us to feel anything other than excitement about that. I think, having admitted that we have scant knowledge of the director's previous, no, I've, I mean, I've read I've read enough good things to make me want to look forward to that in, in Venice. So yeah. precisely. Um, last one to squeeze in for this week, a film called Aniara. This one's going to be really limited, and that's why I put it at the end. It might not be that easy to come by. But the reason I've included it is that, well, this synopsis, Paul. Uh, a spaceship carrying settlers to Mars is knocked off course, causing the consumption-obsessed passengers to consider their place in the universe. Oh, inject it into my veins. Uh, <laughs> this one is brilliantly, Paul, based on a Swedish poem from 1956. Right. Uh, it's directed by a team uh, of Pella Kegerman and Hugo Lilia. I believe they're Swedish uh, film directors here. Uh, hugely ambitious project. I've watched the trailer. It looks gorgeous, this thing. Um, I Maybe too ambitious on the budget that they would have had at their disposal, I, I would venture. Uh, we're in kind of high life territory and it's probably the reason why I'm sort of so high on the idea of getting to track this thing down. But Aniara, does that sound... I mean, it sounds like up your alley. I hardly need to ask that. Yes. But do you think you'd search something like this out? I would, yeah. I, I, I've seen... I've read something about this a few months back and then it kind of... then it dropped off my radar again completely. So I'm, I'm glad it's... I'm glad it's coming. I'm glad it's got a release date. As you say, how easy it will be to find. It's all well and good saying it's got a UK release date of the 30th of August, but we shall see. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be something that Watershed pick up over in Bristol, actually. But yeah, it's the kind of thing I would seek out. It's sci-fi. Uh, yeah. It sounds like it's sci-fi with... It sounds like it's um, a thinking person sci-fi, so I'm all for it. Yeah, it's, I mean, room for, I guess, optimism in that Magnet releases uh, have di- are distributing the movie. So it, like, it's it's carried here. Yeah. There's someone who's going to put it out. It's just like where you're going to get to see it. That might be the difficult thing. But yeah, like you say, hopefully an outlet will make it available. It might go straight to, to Blu-ray and Furnace, but we should say. Uh, we should say. Yeah, 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 and then we can get our hands on it that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I would list stuff like cast, but no one's going to know who these people are, so hopefully we will after we've watched the movie. Um, Paul, that brings us to the end of this section, Coming Attractions. So what we usually do about this time is sort of steal ourselves, sit in our, uh, deeply into our chairs, uh, stare intently at our screens, and get into the next section, which we call Feature Reviews, right after this.
Right, back we are for feature reviews. As we mentioned at the, did we mention at the top of the show? Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. I forgot at this point. No, we've streamed. We've streamlined this bitch, Paul. We don't mention all the different no, elements of the show because I used to waste yeah. about five minutes doing that every week. Absolutely. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so this week we have got two films uh, to be feature reviewed by our good selves. Uh, the first of which we are going to do because I've just decided that on the fly is scary stories. To, scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, directed by Andre Overdahl, and then the second of which will be Alexandra Ayer's Crawl, um, which will be after we've reviewed Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, so after the brief break. Uh, Pete, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, indeed. Um, I've got an apology to make here to listeners. I brought this one up last week and said this to me, and I said it with some certainty, that this seemed to be some kind of anthology collection of, of horror stories. Um, and it's not. Uh, so apologies, listeners. I got that wrong. Um, Pete, set this one up for us after I've shamed myself live on air. I will do that. Yeah, so this one we previewed last week, as you mentioned, this one is set in uh, the, the similar-ish period to the Tarantino film that we reviewed last week. That's the fading embers of the 1960s. 1968, so a little bit earlier than the Tarantino this week. Um, 1968, America. So in the background, we've got the Nixon administration and the impending conflict in in Vietnam. Uh, Changes in the air. There's a small town. It's called Mill Valley. In that small town, for generations, there's been a sort of cloud of shadowy rumours involving a family called the Bellows family. This family lived in an old house which is discovered or investigated. It's been previously discovered. Investigated by a group of friends. These friends uh, in the 60s want to essentially have that kind of uh, teenage coming-of-age kind of experience in a Halloween period. Funny that this movie's come out when it has come out, considering it seems like a little bit early in the calendar, but uh, they go into the house, and what they find there eventually is a book. In this book, they find stories written by a girl who seems to have suffered all manner of ills, not least being confined to a single room in darkness, and all that she could do there is write these stories, which, legend has it, she told to other children in the local community through the wall and those children then disappeared or came to some kind of sticky end before we get to our thoughts and further details on the movie let's hear a little clip initial thoughts on this and I'll be, I'll be quite frank Pete is that there's it's, it's equal parts enjoyable and forgettable I think almost in equal measure with this film there's some really good stuff in here and when it when the film hits it, it's good and there's a lot of as I've said forgettable stuff that doesn't seem to doesn't seem to warrant anything um and I mentioned before uh we started the review that I got it wrong last week that I said this was going to be a horror anthology film and it isn't um any thoughts on the fact that you think I mean the way so the way this film is structured is you have different stories being read out of the read out of this haunted book essentially and then elements of this as the stories are being written elements elements from the stories come to life and start 
killing, well, not necessarily killing or making people disappear. Uh, it looks like, well, certain, some people die, some people seem to disappear. That's kind of one of the film's problems, I think. But yeah, so these, these stories come to life, um, which is why I think if you look at it from the trailer, where I maybe got, and I think a lot of people have come to the conclusion it was initially going to be an anthology film. I think for me, Pete, I don't know where you think on this, and we'll start here. I think it would have worked better as that for, as separate stories. What do you think than than the narrative we've got here? Yeah, it's a bit of a blurred line, though, isn't it? Cause it, it almost is mm. that, except the way in which those things are, are stitched together. And and then, like you're saying about the way they sort of read out these stories, it's a bit Death Note-ish. It's a bit Final Destination-y uh, in terms of like the impending doom of one of the protagonists based on their name and then story being written out by this sort of magically appearing ink. We've seen plenty of horror movies that deal with sort of cursed, t- dusty tomes in a room, haven't we? Um, yeah, I... I guess I'm with you. I mean, I liked the way that this thing was, by and large, I liked the way that this thing was put together structurally. Um, I think for me, and maybe we'll get to them in a little bit, the weaknesses lay elsewhere. Um, tell me more, though. What what do you think frustrated you about the way that know, they I actually just, went about it? I just found story? that I, th- I think if, if it had been three separate stories, I think we would have got to, we would have got to some of the film's better bits quick, uh, quicker than we did. Um, and I just thought that the narrative was quite lumpy. I think at times it was quite interesting. I think it took too long to get where it was going. There were certain elements, the, the scarecrow, the scarecrow segment for want of a better a word of it, the scarecrow part of the story I thought was massively underplayed and I thought they could have done a lot more with that. And instead of doing more sort of more interesting stuff with that, you get a lot more sort of teenagers chatting um, for quite prolonged periods of time and nothing particularly scary happening. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I didn't go to this expecting to be terrified because it's I've seen enough horror films and this isn't the kind of horror film that will scare me necessarily, apart from one scene, which I will get to. Um, yeah, and I just thought I think it would have been... I don't know, I didn't engage that well with some of the characters here and I think I, th- I sort of wanted to spend less time with the characters and more with the scary stories, if that makes sense, and more with the scary elements. And for me, I think if it had been broken down into separate little vignettes, um, I think it would have worked better for me there. I think you would have got to the got to the scarier stuff quicker. Um, that's where I stand with it. Anyway, it's not that I disliked it because, as I said, that, you know, I, as overall, I didn't come out of the cinema thinking I've wasted my time with this. I just felt like it was a bit, a bit of a missed opportunity to make something more akin to Twilight Zone or that kind of, or the kind of ABCs of death kind of stuff. Um, more recently, yeah. yeah I, I mean, so or let's trick or treat. Trick or treat is the one that comes to mind. I think the yeah. trick or treat is is really good. Yeah, it was a surprise. Um, yeah, so d- diving into sort of character here because at the center of this group what you have is a uh, young female sort of aspiring writer Uh, all the kids are like what 15 yeah i'd say 15 in the movie yeah around that age something like that 15 16 i don't know um yeah the this the girl at the center is zoe margaret coletti who i mentioned a little bit earlier on actually because she was in wildlife she's got a bit of a emily browning look about her and i think she's the standout of the young um sort of protagonist in the thing and i think that having a central character in a horror movie who is female and isn't just a moron and scared and killed first is is nice and the, the fact that she was actually um deeply invested in sort of horror mythology she had a room mm. covered in sort of all uh, you know artwork and posters and all this kind of stuff and was actually going about creating her own stories added a bit of a dimension to the thing but i think then that you're right that you spend an awful lot of time with these kids and a uh, problem like i had with that movie good boys last week is that when you've got such a young central cast um 
they really have to step up. And I feel like the longer you stay with them and the, the more dialogue you have, the more that maybe sometimes you're noticing that they're not as at ease as more experienced actors, as you would expect, you know, as you would expect. But it's a tall order for some of this cast. And I think sometimes it, is, it gets a bit creaky between them. And then you've got like a really accomplished actor in the background, sleepwalking his way through this thing, almost literally in Dean Norris yeah. from Breaking <laughs> yeah. Bad. You, you, almost, you almost expect him, he's sort of in his house pottering about and his daughter is the, the central girl here. And you almost expect him to start ranting about those rocks and <laughs> gems and stuff from Breaking Bad but yeah um I don't know but then I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned as a sort of springing off into another area and being positive about yeah. the thing that sequence with the scarecrow I think you're right they didn't do enough with it but it's one of a few where I thought wow like some of the effects work in this movie is great yeah I completely agree and this is where you know this is where you can tell Andrew Orfordale's um, sort of pedigree with Troll Hunter it really shines through. I thought the sequence in the hospital with the red room was ge- genuinely terrifying. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Where just everywhere you look, he's just being encroached on by this creepy fucking thing. Um, it was like an Apex yeah, twin. Video, really, wasn't yeah, really. Yeah. So I think some of the set pieces were done were done really, really well. And I just think it's a shame. And that, yeah, so the positives are there for for horror fans. And that that scene in particular, I think, was a highlight for me. Well, and, and Paul, like you surely went for the, is it called like the Rattler Man yeah. or something like that <laughs> yeah. that cropped up near the end? Yeah. Like a very much John Carpenter-esque like creation, but all crunchy bones and kind of flailing arms. Uh, basically a man who uh, coalesces from a load of body parts yeah. into a kind of creepy, crawly monster. And then reminds you of that uh, episode of the X-Files with the guy who can oh, Victor like Tombs. slither yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah who yeah. can go through small spaces. I love that stuff. I lapped it up. But I think you're right. Like some of the filler in between uh, it felt like a maybe a middling episode of american horror mm. story yeah i think that, i think that's fair i just you know i wouldn't say again i wouldn't say i came out massively disappointed with it i had a good enough time with it but i think there was potential for this to be a bit better than it was in all honesty but there's there's some nice stuff in there and am i alone in thinking it is a bit odd that this has been released in august when it clearly has all the iconography of halloween i'm fairly confident i read so i was reading something the other day that i think studios now horror just makes money whatever time of the year so they're not fussed <laughs> i don't think i know where you're right. coming from it does just yeah. smack of something that would that would be released normally around halloween but then it's dropping it too is dropping next week so um that seems right. to have sort of been thrown out the window they release these things around halloween now do but you, do you think do you think paul that in in this way as well the game has changed where maybe the release of something like this to cinema screens now with like a reasonable run and, and decent you know uh, uptake from an audience will mean then that we can schedule a rollout on streaming services come october to then hoover up eyeballs there because it feels like there's got to be thinking like what you said i think is valid you know horror makes money anytime Mm. but there's got to be thinking but by whoever is distributing this movie to say we're putting it out in august for this and that reason yeah something about that yeah it's got to be either streaming and or physical media coming out around halloween season surely well yeah we'll see we shall see but that seems a bit soon because the theatrical window is what three months isn't it so um i guess so i'd be surprised if we see it by that time but yeah i see where you're coming from but yeah it's from what um from what i was reading it's just the horror is just bankable all all year round and especially it chapter two you'd think it chapter two would be a shoe in for a halloween release but that's coming out and next friday so 
Mm. Yeah, bizarre. I think there's a new Saw movie as well, isn't there? There is supposed to be. I think Chris Rock's rebooting the Saw series as far as I'm aware at the moment. So, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, but yeah, up. no scary stories to tell in the dark. It's fine. There's there's worse ways to spend your time in the cinema than this film, uh, but there's also better ways. <laughs> yeah, and didn't it, did, Paul, didn't it remind you sometime uh, during its runtime that you need to go back and watch Cabin in the Woods? Yes, although I watched that fairly recently. But yes, I know we come Right, I do. Yeah. I do definitely, yeah. yeah. Just because, like, some of that practical effects stuff and sort of all, all manner of uh, of monsters and like creepy business, yeah, made me appreciate that movie more. Maybe slightly to the detriment of this one, but uh, it was like you say, it, it was good, it was enjoyable enough to me. It was sort of a bang on three star type movie, yeah. but uh, yeah, find out for yourself and let us know what you think. That one was scary stories to tell in the dark. We'll be back right after this little break with our review of Alex Ayer's film Crawl. So back we are, as I said, with Alex Ayers, Alexandra Ayers, or Alex Ayers, um, yeah, creature feature, I think is a good way to describe this, Pete, uh, crawl. Um, for what little setting up the needs doing, Pete, you want to set this one up for us? <laughs> sure thing, yeah. So here we have a, a story of a young woman played by uh, Kaya Scodelario uh, that people know from Skins and the Maze Runner series and, and elsewhere. Um, and she returns home to visit her father. Her parents are separated, but she does so amid a Category 5 hurricane, which is a very strong hurricane, I'm led to believe. Uh, she kind of ignores the advice of the local authorities and travels back to his area which I believe is sort of swamp marshy lowland and at further risk uh, than other areas of flooding only to find herself looking for her dad in the crawl space as you do of his house where she becomes trapped once she finds him but uh uh-oh Within that crawl space are also a group of alligators that are vicious <laughs> and hungry, thirsty for human blood. Uh, her father here is played by Barry Pepper from Saving Private Ryan and Green Mile and elsewhere. <laughs> he is back. And um, they have to have all their wits about them, including the elite, seemingly, uh, apex predator swimming skills of Kaya Scodelario's character. Before we get into our thoughts, here's a little clip. first thought is it's, it's good job her character's a swimmer in this film isn't it pete to be honest because otherwise otherwise i don't think she'd last five minutes <laughs> yeah i mean i mentioned in the wildlife little uh, little review earlier on that the sort of um you know themes or or stuff are like like lathered on slathered on fairly heavy handedly i guess but here oh my god <laughs> can they just stop apex predator she's a swimmer she's a predator she can outpace a predator she'll get away it'll be fine i get it uh but yeah the movie itself paul going in 
Are you a fan? I think I know the answer, but are you a fan of Alex Ayer? And if so, why? I am. Uh, generally speaking, probably with the exception of Horns, which was an absolute fucking mess of a film. Um, See, I still haven't seen that, mainly because I really like Alex Ayer and I haven't yeah, seen that's, it. That's the, yeah, me. that's the thing. Uh, but, but generally, yes, I do like Alex Ayer as a director a lot. I think um, there's... There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension to the films. Um, they normally look incredible. And if there's ever a director that understands how to use violent, how to use extreme gore sparingly, it is Alex Ayer, without a shadow of a doubt. So, yeah, I went into this, I'll be honest, very excited. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's po-faced in places. It's very silly in places. It's heavy-handed in places. But... I had the most fun with this since The Shallows in terms of a creature feature. I had a great time with Crawl. Like, and I think it looks great. It's atmospheric. Like, it's very atmospheric. And yeah, as I said, the moments, the moments of violence, like when the crocodiles bite or people get injured, it it makes you cringe in the seat. It made me like, ah, ah, just it works. There's just some, and it, it, like the cinematography is always fantastic. Like, just a, a cut above the cinematography in this film is a cut above what you'd expect from a film of this type and I think that's the common thing with Alexandra Ayer's all of Alexandra Ayer's films um, the best of which I think controversially because you know, I don't normally moan about remakes the best film by, by I think they've made is The Hills of Eyes remake um, for sure going all the way back to that I thought that was fantastic it was certainly one of the better films anyway um, Pete what did you think of this because you saw this a few weeks ago now didn't you I did yeah but I, I've still got a fairly decent memory of it I think yeah I mean I I was very much sort of um, metaphorically grabbed around the throat by Alex Iyer years and years ago with the release of that movie Switchblade Romance which you were saying that he's like a master of tension and the original French title was effectively high high tension yeah. Um, and and that, that's a movie that starts with a, a sort of home invasion and a guy getting his head stoved in with like a loose wardrobe, I want to say. But it's a Chris Morris thing. Uh, yeah, no, with, a, with like a chest of drawers. Someone gets their head smashed off with a chest of drawers. And I was like, uh-oh, this director's not playing around at all. And it didn't let up for the most of the runtime of that movie. So this isn't quite there in terms of like the visceral sort of gut-punchy impact of that movie for me. No. But I don't think that's what he was trying to do either i think that yeah as i said to you when i previewed this or when we previewed it last week i've heard people saying oh it's a bunch of jump scares and i want to get your take on this paul because i just feel that's completely off base i don't think there's a lot of jump scare stuff in this at all i mean much less so than the other feature review that we've had uh, the scary stories movie this week there's very little in terms of because i don't know that people always understand what they mean when they say it's full of jump scares Right. No, I'm kind of with you. I didn't think it was particularly full of jump scares. I mean, there is, there is. I jumped a couple of times, which is rare for me to jump in the cinema. So if the jump scares are effective and sparingly used, then good. My problem with jump scares in a film, and I think probably your problem with jump scares in a film as well, is when they are the only scares to be had in a film. That for me is when there's yeah. too many jump scares. But this had, this had, this had tension from start to finish. Like this was a legitimately tense film. Like it was a silly film, but it was a tense film. And I don't think the tension let up from start to finish. To be honest, I was. I was glued to this film from from beginning to end like for for all its problems like it, I was glued to it so I think it had atmosphere way beyond jump scares 
Yeah, and and I just think that's what I say like about the, the definition of that thing. It's a thing that's very easy to throw around, like pretentious or whatever, as, as just a way of criticising something you don't like. But a jump scare to me, in, at least in modern horror filmmaking, is about using very heavy-handed audio cues and having something where there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's something, it's really close to the camera and there's a loud noise. Yeah. So that like there's a, a reaction, an unavoidable physical reaction to being shocked, usually by sound more than image. Yeah. That's a jump scare because someone jumped when they saw something that shocked them that to me is not by definition a jump scare so i I feel like that thing gets a bit twisted sometimes but yeah i I really enjoyed it man i mean what do you want you're in a cool space there's there's killer alligators there's a girl who's good at swimming but is she good enough not to get her legs bitten off we'll find out Uh, you know your boy barry pepper seems to be very slow moving seems intent on making mistakes all of the time (laughs) and getting himself killed as soon as possible and then we've got hapless cops they turn up on a boat and they haven't got a clue of course they're going to get eaten but it's terrific good fun you know they're there and to be eaten I, yeah, like those cops I, are always going to get eaten like, yeah i'm with you like what more do you uh, I, it gave me everything and what everything i wanted everything it gave me everything i expected from a film called crawl about it, it gave yeah it's it's my favorite alligators in a hurricane film what can i say like it gave yeah, me everything uh, i wanted from what i saw in the trailer and i had a great time with it and do you get it do you get it like alligators crawl but also front crawl yeah. You get it, yeah. Um, but but yeah, no, I I am all for it, man. And what was funny to me is that this, when I saw it on the preview, I only saw this preview not because I'm special, but just because it was one of those secret screening, you know, things at the the cine cinema um, uh, where you go and they don't tell you what the movie is, and then it just puts up the title card, and then a lot of people go, oh fuck, and walk out. It's or not whatever. Avengers. And like <laughs> this, yeah, this thing seemed to really upset people. They were like, well, what the hell is this? Like crappy beat, whatever. And it's like you pay for your ticket you take the ride and what a lovely ride this is it's exciting it's a little bit scary it nips along and it finishes after about 90 minutes i think you know there's a lot to commend alex Iyer and his team for with this movie it's not perfect there's flaws there's bits of interchange like dialogue stuff between barry pepper and kaya scodelario that are kind of creaky and rubbish but it, it, it nips along and i'd watch it again and you could throw this on you know six months down the line and have a great time with it again surely yeah i'm, I'm totally with you yeah it gave me as i said I'm not not going to sit here and pretend it's perfect. It's not going to make my film with the year list or anything like that. And I'm not going to sit. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to blindly defend this film against its faults just because I had a great time with it. But despite its faults, I did have a great time with it. Like, it, yeah, I really just I came out of the cinema I was just like, yes, I haven't seen a film like that for a while. Did you ever see that movie um, from the guy who made Wolf Creek? That's called uh, is Greg Greg McLean? Yes, um, Rogue. Yeah, Rogue. I yeah, thought Rogue I enjoyed this more than Rogue, I think. Yeah, Rogue is a bit shit, but like, if you liked this kind of thing, go and have a, yourself a little time with Rogue, because in Rogue, they go on a journey down like some rivers, and Rada Mitchell's leading a tourist group, and then there's just a massive alligator, like a silly <laughs> oversized one. And yeah, again, if you like this kind of genre stuff, you know, in, enjoy yourself a little bit, calm down. You know, it might not be the kind of thing that you would always go for but i think strap yourself in and just have you know an hour and a half of, of isn't rogue set in, is rogue set in australia it must be mate because yeah in which case that would australian, be a crocodile Pete, yeah. not an alligator oh do they not have no, them? Southern, southern I, I hemisphere learned. is crocodiles i think and northern hemisphere is alligators i'm fairly confident you, you're probably that. right you're probably right because <laughs> i but i learned that uh alligators go away from you crocodiles come towards you that's all of my knowledge okay because i met some alligators in uh in in uh, miami when i was there or in the keys 
Um, and so, I, to be honest, though, in this movie, it doesn't seem like alligators really go away from you. It seems like no, they stalk no. you so, with yeah, great going intelligence. Back, going back to crawl rather than our knowledge. Um, yeah, I mean, this feels like a documentary in places. <laughs> Yeah. Do, it, do you think it was a little bit like the science in Deep Blue Sea where the alligators develop super brains and they can sort of scheme and get together and figure out how to hunt in a really intelligent, I don't think it was that coordinated no, fashion? Not quite, not quite. But no, and also the other thing I wanted to give this film a shout out, I thought the special effects were decent as well because there's no way this had a yeah. huge budget. And I thought the the, um, the alligators looked surprisingly good for what would have been a, a moderately low budget film or certainly a mid budget film, I think. So. Yeah, no, I, yeah. yeah, I liked it. I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Um, it did exactly what it said on the tin. Yeah, and support it, you know, because otherwise everything's going to be superhero movies and sequels and reboots and etc. You know, it's a bit of original work and, um, you know, more power to them. So, yeah, get, and it is, buy a ticket. It's well, well worth seeing on the cinema screen as well. It looks it looks good enough to, it sure. looks good enough to warrant a big screen. So, yeah, check it out. It's a lot of fun. It's very silly. Enjoy it. And let us know what you think. So, Paul, before we uh, bid adieu for this episode, we have a little section that we call credits, where we give credit to absolutely anything, something that you have been impressed by or happy with or whatever over the last seven days. What have you got to give credit to as those credits roll across the screen this week? Uh, so, in front of Crawl, there was a trailer for Terminator Dark Fate, the new Terminator film, which we'll undoubtedly be covering. And then, to my amazing, amazingly pleasant surprise was a thing going, oh, on Judgment Day, in two days' time, on the 29th, uh, a lot of cinemas seem to have surprised everyone with a double bill of Terminator 1 and 2 on the big screen. So, big credit to whoever came up with that idea, and I am so excited to be watching Terminator 1 and 2 back-to-back on the big screen. So excited. So, credit to that. (laughs) We both went to, what was that, two years ago, when they put Terminator Terminator 2 2 in 3D? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was a fun time. It was a fun thing to talk about again as well. So I think similarly with this thing, and as I told you before we started recording, I had sort of earmarked this as a thing I couldn't do because I'm supposed to go running on Thursday. But then I've realised that with an event so close, I probably need to take a rest and sit in the cinema for like four hours straight. Yeah. So maybe I'll do that instead. Yeah, and no, I'm just uh, very excited to see the first Terminator on the big screen because I've seen T2, but I don't think I've seen the original Terminator. I might be wrong on that one, but regardless... As I've said, after what I've seen this summer, any opportunity to see classic films on the big screen, I will take. So, yeah, super psyched for that. Super psyched. Pete, any credits from you? Uh, Yeah, I want to give credit to something that's not particularly new as it released uh, last year, very end of last year, at least limited wise. Um, But something that I was so enraptured by that I wanted to include it on a list or something and I just couldn't force it on so far. Uh, That's Free Solo. Free Solo, um, it came back into my mind because I watched a piece with Alex Honnold, who is just ceaselessly entertaining like if you see this guy in the film he's seemingly superhuman and has got like nerves of steel and climbs El Capitan with no ropes and at any moment one little sneeze or slip or something could lead to his death on camera Uh, but when you see him interviewed he's got this kind of uh, way of straight batting questions with a sort of dry sense of humour that I can't get enough of. Around the time <laughs> I saw the film, I watched endless interviews with him. I just found him so fascinating as a, as a sort of character study in his own right. Um, the film Free Solo with, with your boy Alex Honnold in is currently available on the Nat Geo TV um, streaming service. So I think you can access that for free as far as I understand. And if not, if you've got National Geographic, obviously you'll be able to get it that way. Um, otherwise, I don't think it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime at the moment, but if you haven't caught up with it, honestly, one of my favourite films of last year. Free Solo, that is. Good. I enjoyed it, to be fair. So not quite as much as that, but I did enjoy it. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's well worth it. The actual climb itself is fucking incredible. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and and also it sticks in my mind because it got me into a big fight with that knobhead, uh, Matt Lynch on Letterboxd, who everybody, uh, it seems to lord for writing little pithy reviews, and he slagged off Alex Honnold, and that was the last straw. Uh, I fell out with him big time. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, um, you know, it's not, it's not really important to anybody else, but it's another reason why I remember Free Solo. So yeah, get to it if you haven't seen it up till now. Paul, for this episode, I think we're done, but um, where can people get in touch with us if they want to tell us why we are uninformed idiots? Uh, you can find us, well, I'm not going to tell you if that's what you're going to tell us. No, you can find us on at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers in a Cinema on Facebook and Instagram. So yeah, get in touch, hook us up, let you know, let us know what you think of the show. Let us know if you want to review anything. Uh, and yeah, give us some feedback because we are listening. So we, you listen to us and we will listen to you. Uh, so yeah, apart, aside from that, all remains is to say goodbye for, from myself yeah bang and just to reiterate get onto instagram check out our list of upcoming films for the rest of the year because i think you'll have strong opinions if you're a film fan about what you're most looking forward to if not coming into sort of lockstep with what we went for so yeah get to that apart from that yeah we will speak to you next week um it's goodbye from me shut up and sit down